DQ presents... Picture this. Picture the new DQ Summer Blizzard Treat Menu with iconic flavors that taste like instant summer. You order the one and only Drumstick Blizzard with peanuts. Oh, wow. Crunchy waffle cone pieces, world-famous DQ Soft Serve, and Blue Sky Bliss. Or maybe you get the Brownie Batter Blizzard. Ooh-wee. Fudgy brownie goodness. You're feeling breezy and dreamy all over. Moments like these are why the new DQ Summer Blizzard Treat Menu exists. Get it delivered at DQ.com. DQ. Happy tastes good. My name is Bruce Reyes Chow, and this is BRC and Friends. Each episode, I chat with activists, artists, academics, and adventurers to discuss politics, faith, pop culture, technology, and as you will discover, pretty much everything else that pops into our heads. This is basically an excuse for me to hang out with friends and colleagues and riff about things that matter. Welcome to BRC and Friends. Today, I welcome to the show my new friend, Terrell Carter, full-time professor, bivocational pastor, uh, former police officer from St. Louis, Missouri, and he is the author of, if you're watching on YouTube, I'm holding up the copy of the book, um, Finding Strength in Our Diversity, Healing Racial Divide. So we're going to jump right in. Terrell, tell us who you are. Who is Terrell Carter? Uh, like you said, I am a former police officer. So I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. I uh, am a former police officer for the city of St. Louis, and I am a pastor, have been in pastoral ministry, or have been in ministry for God knows how long. I answered my call (laughs) to ministry when I was 16 years old, so I started preaching when I was 17, and um, I'm, in addition to, you know, faith being an important thing in my life, I'm also a visual artist. Uh, The image on the cover of the book is a a print that I created, so thank you. Um, There you go. So I am a uh, full-time professor uh, at a seminary, a wonderful seminary called Central Baptist Theological Seminary in Shawnee, Kansas, and I am assistant professor of practical theology and director of contextualized learning. But that's only until the end of April, uh, the beginning of June, I start a new position. I will be vice president and chief diversity officer for Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. Oh. Uh, Greenville is a uh, liberal arts, a Christian liberal arts university with a um, free Methodist background. So, well, that's exciting going to the college campus. And so, will you be involved with uh, both institutional kinds of things and recruiting? I mean, what what does that position mean? So, it's the first position of its type, and I have made a uh, like a cottage industry of being the first of something. And I've multiple times been the first African American to be called as pastor of a historically white congregation. Uh, this is the first time this type of position has occurred. Greenville is a small um, rural um, community in southern Illinois, and um, the primary diversity in the community comes either from the university or from the federal prison that is located in the town. And <laughs> okay. uh, it has uh, some challenges that you would anticipate that go along with that. So my position, my privilege will be to try to help the university think about diversity in a much bigger uh, way, much more impactful way, and to help um, the university uh, build better relationships, build more formative relationships with the community as well. Okay, now you'll have to forgive my uh, West Coast uh, public education um, geography education. Uh, Do you have to move? So it is about 45 minutes or 45 miles from my current house. Uh, my wife works for Washington University, which is in St. Louis. So we oh, yeah. Uh, but the, the campus is located 45 miles outside of St. Louis. 
So we are navigating what the future will look like. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's funny, I, uh, as those listening to the show know that I'm moving as well to a, it, it, I'm going to a, a, an all white congregation and um, I mean, all white, 98% okay. white, um, but, and two pastors and we're both of color. Their head of staff, oh, myself, I'm, I'm the head of staff. And then our associate is a young woman, African-American woman. Uh, and so we're, we like, we're trying to think that between the two of us, like, can we find, remember, know of any predominantly white congregations with multi-pastoral staff and they're both of color. Wow. Bless you. And, so, and so I, I, we'll, well, it's in Palo Alto. So if, uh, if you know anything about Palo Alto, it's a, it's a pretty wealthy, educated um, community. Uh, but they, you know, they are doing some great work in that context. And they've called two people of color, um, which is going to be fascinating. So that we could, that's a whole nother show. Um, yeah. You know, pastors of color leading white folks. I have a, a book proposal that I'm looking for a publisher for that is specifically about that. It's black, oh, really? pastor, black, pa- uh, black pastor, white congregation and a decision or a choice to be made. And it explores the idea of what does it mean to have a, a person of color serving a historically white church and, is there the opportunity for the person of color or the pastor of color to still be authentic or is it yep. mandatory for them to adopt the culture of the dominant group and, and communicate and do it in that, that way? Right. And, and what's, and what's the question for the church to who makes that call? If it's grounded in any kind of tokenism or anything like that's a huge chance for them to take and not realize the implications of that. I mean, I, Oh, well, when you start working on that one, I'd love to talk with you, my the associate uh, Ananda, um, who comes out of Atlanta uh, and is living in Northern California now. She'd be a wonderful person to, to talk with. So, all right, let's talk about your book, though. Um, I, you're, you and I share a lot of common things. I I love doing a lot of different things, and um, so I love that you're doing all this stuff. But your your book, um, uh, tell me a little bit about why you started writing, like, what was the impetus for you going, okay, I'm going to, I want to write this book. I mean, I, a lot of us feel like we have books in us. And I, um, I always tell folks when they tell me that, I'm like, you, you don't until you write it. So um, kudos for actually writing it. Uh, but what was the impetus? Why, what, what drove you to kind of say, okay, I'm going to do this? So I've written eight books so far. Um, what This book uh, came from a prior book. So again, I was a police officer for the city of St. Louis, okay. resigned because of the, the not so good things about policing. I was serving as pastor in a district that I patrolled. Wow. Uh, and that was a challenge. When I left the police department, I was called back to uh, that same district all over again to become pastor at a different church. So Mike Brown gets shot and killed in Ferguson, and I eventually write a you know, a book that's more of a series of essays or columns that talks about what it meant to be a police officer, to be a black police officer, and, you know, how that was a challenge to my faith. And so I began to get the opportunity to start, you know, going out and speak uh, specifically on race and policing. Um, But as time went on, and I began to interact with multiple congregations and people, I began to realize that most people just don't even understand the history behind race in the United States. Yeah. We don't remember, we're not taught, we, it's just uncomfortable for us to talk about these things. And so uh, that's what prompted me to go ahead and just write something. And I tried to write it from a position of not accusing anyone of anything, but just to say, look, we have a challenge that we have to face and here goes the challenge, here goes the history behind it. But here goes the opportunity if we are willing to face that challenge. Right. Do folks when they then when they read this though, let me do they have to make 
do they have to begin with the assumption? The thing that I found that is really interesting is that some folks just assume that there isn't racism. And I, I, and I try not to show on my face when they say things like that to be like, how do you, what? Right. But what assumptions do folks need to have when they start this? Can they assume there isn't racism? And, and as they read through this, you're, you'll help to make a case for, because you, you draw some great, not only biblical, but just historical kind of connections to how whiteness has been normalized and those kinds of things. But how have you seen people respond who like, I, race isn't a problem. It's, you know, it, we should be, we're over that. Well, one of the things we have to help people understand is your experience is not the experience of everyone else. And if mm-hmm. that's the point that you have to start at. Uh, just like my experience as a black man is not the same experience as yours. And yours is not the same as your co-pastor or the associate at your church. And just because we don't witness or experience something on a daily basis or a regular basis does not mean that it doesn't happen. Right. Uh, I love a, a story that Martin Luther King Jr. told um, when he was going to Memphis to participate or to lead one of the boycotts. Uh, I'm sorry, it wasn't Memphis, but it was another one. Uh, and somebody said, well, Martin, there's going to be te- uh, television crews there are cameras there do we really want all this to be on television and he said yes because that's going to show the world what we are going through and so unless you see what someone else is going through you're never going to understand that that's what the reality is so that's the first point or the first idea the first space I think I try to get people to to start at is is that just because it does not happen to you does not mean that it doesn't happen to someone else and so my goal in the book is not to just Um, again, my my goal is not to just point fingers and to tell people, here goes the horrible history, but it's to say, here goes something that you may not be aware of. You may not realize this has happened. And now that you know that this has happened, let's start exploring what the implications are. And then Mm -hmm. once we explore what the implications are, then we can start trying to figure out how we each can try to participate in making it better. Right. Have you seen any any ways, um, you know, I have, lots of friends who, who kind of engage in different ways and I engage in these conversations different ways. And, and we come down to this, uh, you have a quote in there that just talks about understanding people's experiences. They're still loved by God, even if they disagree with you. But what do we do with folks who are so, you know, I have relatives, right. And in, in, in in-laws and actually not many of my relatives, my in-laws who, um, you know, well, we've had to tell them stop forwarding us your, your stuff, you know, and I, and I, I have to hide them on Facebook and I'm like, I, it's not my, I, I am not, it's not my responsibility to educate my in-laws around some of the stuff and I just don't have the energy or the time. How do you tell folks, you know, love those people as, as uh, created children of God, even though they, it's not just about disagreement, does racism exist, but it's like this vitriolic response to conversations about race that just, it seems like a non-starter. Like, how, how, do, how do you help folks cross that bridge into still loving them? How do they do that? And, and again, not looking, obviously not a Pollyannish way, but still, how do we actually value this createdness that we're trying to kind of get across when everybody is so um, vitriolic these days? I kind of have the same attitude as you have. I'm not here to argue with anybody. Number one, I respect the image of God that you reflect, and I'm going to show you respect. But when I see that there is an area or there are areas that keep us from being able to be in regular fellowship, then we just won't be in regular fellowship. That doesn't mean I'm going to dog you. I'm not going to talk about you. I'm not going to be negative to you. I'm not going to shoot you down. I'm still going to look for ways for us to interact together. But 
those interactions are going to be really few and far in between. I mean, yeah. you and I have the same kind of relatives, uh, that, <laughs> you know, we, but it may be on the right side or it may be on the left though as well. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we think um, it's only just pro Trump people that are, you know, can be morons. And I hope that's yeah. not the word from the youth, but yeah. <laughs> pro, and I'm just saying Obama because Obama was the last democratic president. There are pro, you know, uh, Obama people who are morons just as well, who don't, you know, adhere to reality. And so yeah. my point is, is that, again, as long as we can find common areas to work together, we will. And if we can't, we can't. And I just don't, I'm not going to spend time with you. That's, that's the personal philosophy I have. But even in that, I don't get to tear you down. Yeah. Even though uh, you may say something, I still have the opportunity to defend you or defend God's image that you reflect. I may have to do a grit in my teeth, but I, I still <laughs> my uh, uh, my mother. Uh, so I'm a baseball person. My mom um, would hear me rant on Alex Rodriguez, and just I he was he's my most hated baseball player ever. And I just go off, and she'd say, "You know, Bruce, Alex has a mother too." <laughs> I'd be like, and I'd be like, "Whatever." She's probably taking steroids too. Whatever. Uh, but yeah, but I, mean, I think that that's kind of so. That's the same tech I take is. I I don't have to give you're not entitled to my energy and my time and and actually for me to go after you is is me giving you my energy and time and I'm not I'm just not going to do that. But then you get accused of and I'm sure this happens well you know then you're kind of being like you're not responding you're not being soft like I mean you're being soft and you like do you get folks on the on the on that uh that justice side who like want you to be more vigilant i can kind of be out there more or do what i get that a little sometimes from my friends and i'm like when i call them out a little bit i'm like you know i'm just not going to name call i just don't think it's but yeah they kind of judge me in some subtle ways for not kind of digging on people a little bit more with the platform that i might have do you get some of that uh not very much anymore i think that over time i've been able to show um like that i'm that I'm serious, for real or that I'm legitimate or that what I'm saying is not just hyperbole. Uh, and I think that I put in the time in the big picture sense that shows that I am who I say I am and that what I believe I am actually trying to live that out. Uh, so for the uh, position that I start in June at Greenville University, uh, there are, I had to do a face-to-face -face interview with the entire you know population and one of the things I said to them was, I recognize that diversity is an important thing for some of us, and some of us, it's probably a non-starter, and that there are going to be people all the way on this side, there are going to be people all the way on this side. My privilege is how do I get you all to meet as close as possible to the middle, mm -hmm. and the only way that happens is, is me putting in the time and building the relationships with everyone to try to hear and understand, and then, you know, for the spirit to speak and work through the midst of us. But for my personal friends or for the other people who hear, uh, who hear me speak or who have interacted with my work, whatever, uh, I'm able to say to them, you know, this is not just words. You know, I, I left the police department and testified against a former police officer. Right, right. So you, you, know, have, you have some credibility there. Right. Yeah. And not only that, I, you know, I serve in a congregation. Uh, again, I am the first African-American, twice now the first African-American to serve historically white congregations. And I didn't try to change the congregations to something that they were not, you know, you, right. respect them and you love them as they are and you try to help them understand whatever it is in their particular context. So, right. Right. Man, that's, that is a whole nother show.
Yeah. Talk about, I mean, that we'll need to, we'll need to revisit a little bit for that. Well, that, that's great. So tell me how, in, in that context, then, since you've been pastoring, how have you, because you have to take serious your context, right? So if you were in a traditionally black congregation or a multi-ethnic congregation or a predominantly white congregation, how have you been, and I, with, with integrity, talked about race? Have you been, do you do it the same in any of all of them? Or how, how does that conversation begin to happen? What do you, what do you do foundationally? And, and then how does that impact worship and preaching? I mean, what, tell, tell me a little bit about how race and, and that, that congregational faith interacts. So the idea um, that I try to express and share is that we are all created in the image of God regardless. And that means not just uh, what a person looks like, but so many other things as well. And so as the scriptures speak uh, on uh, showing God's love to all people or showing God's love to the other, the other is one of my favorite phrases is, uh, you know, Christ made his ministry, uh, the staple of his ministry of welcoming others. I'm preaching um, from um, Luke chapter 15, I think, this Sunday. And it starts out by saying that the Jesus sat with uh, tax people and sinners and the Pharisees were like, what is he doing sitting with those kind of people? I mean, so as Jesus has given us the example of welcoming and accepting others, then we have the opportunity to do that as well. I also don't use language based i use language that's appropriate for the people that i serve mm-hmm. uh you know again so in the black congregation or the black context in which i was raised race is is something you know it's already expected it's right. you know to be to speak out about it so but at the particular congregation that i serve now um they would hope to be a colorblind congregation and on one sense that's a good thing but right. on another sense that's something that's yeah. not realistic and that doesn't you know, there are all so many different challenges, and I talk about that in the book as well. There are so many different challenges with that, but I, I use language that respects that, that acknowledges that, and then I use that language as a starting point to build a bigger vocabulary. And so I don't preach about race, quote unquote, uh, on a regular basis. I preach about accepting all people as created in the image of God, and then we welcome other people in or welcome mm-hmm. other opportunities for events and things like that where uh, we can have a broader, more intense conversation. And we, sometimes people from the show <laughs> up and sometimes they don't. Oh yeah. You know, but it was so. interesting during my candidating sermon. Um, I, I, I just named it, said both your pastors are of color and, and, and everything, everybody knows, but it's that, like, I'm just going to name it. Right. And it's, it's, it's not a warning. It's not a, like, it's, it's not, but that like this, this brings this whole community into a different space and, well, but, you know, you know there's, some, there's a truth, and I talk about this in the book as well, is you and I both have been trained in a very particular way. So I've only gone to European-based kind of yep. So I speak in a, a particular way. My theology is, uh, although my theology may be different, the language that I use to describe it is still the language that's used by traditional, right. you know, congregations. And so we have the opportunity or we have the innate ability or it might not be something that's good. It's something that I actually struggle with. <laughs> you know, am I yeah. being authentic to myself or am I just, you know, doing this in a particular way to make sure that they feel safe? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's a conversation that I've been struggling with, but I've been struggling with internally. I have not had this conversation with the congregation. Yeah. Well, no, I, I mean, I, I am right with you. I mean, I, you know, I think that ability to, 
kind of, and I think it's kind of any folks of color know you're, you, you sit in multiple circles and you're, you, you're able to just do that. But then when you land in a place that seems like severely marked with privilege, have you now like taken that and, and probably that into our own comfort and security mm-hmm. and how much should we like leave it? I mean, that, that's a, but I actually think that if we're not having that struggle internally, that's when we've, <laughs> we've right. like we, we we've we've we, we then we have kind of moved into this space that right. um isn't isn't useful but if i mean i'm going to a very wealthy congregation one of the wealthiest cities in the country highly educated and uh you know i'm i'm always and i've always served small i started a church i've served ethnic churches and um and I'm like huh okay this is good. this, this is <laughs> <laughs> like they're paying for me to move. I'm like, I've never had that before. <laughs> so, all right. So let's talk about uh, a few other things. So I'm glad we, I mean, I, again, part of the show is, is that, you know, those of us that do this work, we don't just do this work, but kind of everything that we do makes us who we are. So I was asked folks a little bit of like, what other kinds of fun things do you like to do or things that, that drive you? And, and you uh, talked about sports. I'm a sports person. I'm soccer and baseball are my things. Cause my, my two daughters, um, play soccer and um, one is we're in the middle of recruiting for college now and like I'm uh, I'm trying not to say you should go where you can keep playing college soccer because apparently the decision is not about me right um, but man I'd love to keep watching her play <laughs> I have a 21 year old son and he graduates from college this year and he had the opportunity to play college soccer and so the church where I serve uh, the head basketball coach is a member of the local, uh, the head basketball coach of the local university is a member. And he set it up where my son had the opportunity to, you know, go through the whole process, get recruited, everything. And my son said, nah, it sounds like it's going to be too much work. So I'm not playing college soccer. Broke, broke your heart. Right. Like, do you realize I gave my right arm to play college football? You're going to look like a missing. But he, he's more than I am. And I, well, and it's, you know, and, I, and again, I'm just sitting there going, okay, is it really, like, I have to keep saying out loud, it's not about you, dad. Like, you re- she's going to decide where she's, and she may choose soccer, but she may not, it's not about, and I can have these out loud conversations with me, so I make sure that I don't somehow unintentionally communicate these things as she's going through this just horrendous process in college. Um, so, but you, you're a college basketball person. Okay, so explain, so it's apparently this thing called March Madness. Uh, and I was tell I was telling you all before the show that Californians and West Coast people. I mean, we like college sports, but it's nothing like when you, the, like North Carolina. Like my my daughter, my youngest daughter, decided that she may want to go to Duke. Mm-hmm. Ooh, ooh. I, see, <laughs> and we have a we have a Tar Heel in our family, and they're like, oh well, the Duke is for people who couldn't get into North Carolina, like. <laughs> And now she just does it all the time. I actually don't think she wants to. Now she's like, I'm going to go to Duke. And then, anyway, so tell me, where, how did, uh, uh, why North Carolina? Like, what about, what about this March Madness college basketball thing is so uh, driving for you? And why, what's the cultural kind of, and we'll talk positive about it. Like, what's, what's the cultural movement around, around these things? Well, for me, basketball is just something that we did when we were growing up. I mean, I, we grew up in a, I'm say we, I'm sorry. I have a twin brother whose name is Darrell and uh, we grew up in North St. Louis and we grew up in a, an urban 
you know, city. I mean, we grew up in North St. Louis City. So, right. uh, you know, we play basketball every day. And so that has stuck with me. And, huh. So um, how'd you get to North Carolina then? How's that I, your... I didn't go to North Carolina. I'm just a big fan of... I mean, how, yeah, I mean, how did you... How did you... Oh, Choose North uh, Carolina. I can't remember. I just remember J.R. Smith. So this is telling me. Oh, yeah. I remember J.R. Oh, yeah. Smith. We're probably about the same age. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> and Eric Montross and that. Whole oh, yeah. Thing. Eric Montross. Right. Woo. So you can, this is how long ago I was a fan. So it was at the same time, though, or shortly after that, I started liking UNLV. But North Carolina has always just been my team. And then I now have a personal connection. One of my uh, long-term mentors from when I was uh, – 20, 19 years old, he uh, works and lives uh, in North Carolina and his uh, father and mother live there. And I got a chance to play. Uh, I went to go visit him uh, in North Carolina. I got to play at the golf course that Michael Jordan's a, a member of, like the <laughs> private golf course. Right. And it was the first time I ever played at a like high end where you drive up and they, you just get out of the car and they take care of everything else. So, uh, so how's, that, how's that first drive off the tee? Oh, it was horrible. It was horrible. <laughs> I, I realized I was in a place that I probably did not belong. There is no probably. I did not belong I was really there because of somebody, because of a friend who was taking me. Yeah. Uh, so I was really nervous, but it was the first time I ever shot a birdie too was at that course as well. So There you go. Uh, you should have just, le- just left the course after that birdie and be like, I'm done. No, no. It was, the birdie was not until like hole number 13. So I had <laughs> one round of tearing everything up. And, and anyway, yeah, I should have left after the first hole as well. <laughs> I'll just drive the cart and get you your drinks. And <laughs> oh, that's I've I have never played on one of those fancy courses. I, um, and I I used to play quite a bit, and and then I kind of felt like I got too good, in a sense. Like I was I was shooting in the high eighties, and I'm thinking, you know, if a pastor is shooting below nineties, I kind of think you're playing too much. Well, I was about to, well, <laughs> here's the thing: before I, I served at the seminary, I was executive director of a social service agency or a community development corporation. And I had gotten to the point where I was playing twice a week because I was part, <laughs> you know, as a networking. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So right, right, I see the look on your face. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, so I was playing, Net- networking. <laughs> I was playing once a week at a par three to work on my short game, and then playing a regular nine holes uh, once a week as well. So I was really, really enjoying it. See, but I was not a full time pastor. I was bivocational pastor. So it's yeah, okay. it's, it's okay. <laughs> okay, whatever you say. Right. <laughs> Yeah, back when I mean I don't know what rates are now for your courses, but out, out here that's the hard thing is now they're just really expensive. I mean it's just it's just yeah like everything else out in California. Uh, all right, so uh, what other what are your so you're a Steelers fan? You said Steelers and the Texans. Texans. Okay, so, so how do you get to those two teams? So Steelers, my father's uh, childhood team. But in addition to that, I have a cousin who won the Super Bowl with the Steelers as well. Oh, okay. Well. Uh, so, but the Texans, so I'm, again, we're from St. Louis, born and raised in St. Louis. Our father was not a part of our life while we were growing up. We turned 14 years old. He, wants, he decided he wants to have a relationship with us. We moved to Texas. And in Texas, and we're only there for four years for high school. So we play basketball, baseball, football, and uh, run track. But uh, my senior year, I was okay. I played football. I started both ways. And the dream was to become a, you know, to go play football, be a running back for Texas Tech. But my favorite football player was Warren Moon. And Warren oh, yeah. was the quarterback for the Houston Oilers. Yep. Uh, he got traded my junior year. And Cody Carlson becomes the starting quarterback for the Houston Oilers. And my senior year, uh, I received a, a, I earned a scholarship. And Cody Carlson, the starting quarterback for the Houston Oilers, my favorite team, 
was the uh, the speaker for the event as well. So huh. I got a chance to meet him and spend a little bit of time with him. So it was really cool. But anyway, so Houston, because I Warren Moon and because I began to love the team while we were there for four years and then Pittsburgh Steelers because of my dad and I have a cousin who has a Super Bowl ring. Hey, that, that, that all, that's all it. You just need – there you go. Well, it's so funny. <laughs> after he won the Super Bowl, he came back to St. Louis and was, you know, at a particular relative's house. And there was a line around the entire house with <laughs> like with things to, for him to sign. And I'm like, wait a minute. This is the same dude that we grew up with. He is not yeah. special. So, it's right. Go take the garbage out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, he, he's a lot bigger than me, so I wouldn't <laughs> What position did he play? He was a, uh, a starting offensive lineman. Oh, oh, then he's yeah. That's <laughs> that's 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 big. All right, well, cool. So, and you're also in the movies. What's the last movie you've seen? I can't remember what the last movie I've seen, but all uh, typically what I do now is I go to the movies with my daughter. So I have a so again, my son is 21 years old. He's a filmmaking and film production major at a local university. So it's really hard to just go watch a movie and enjoy it because I'm thinking about it like. He would, you know, he talks to us about the history of film and technique and all those things. But my does he talk to the whole thing and be like, oh, my God, I can't believe they're doing that? Or... No, he doesn't do that. Okay. He does not do that. He uh, it, it's what actually I really do appreciate it because we're able to have an intellectual conversation. You're a dad and, you know, you there's a point where you're like, I want my kids to be on the same level as me. Yeah. Or for me to be, you know, for us to be able to, yeah. to talk across the same level, rather. And this is the thing where we're able to talk across the same level and he's like you know a genius a whiz at it he is oh good movies, movies to him are what the bible and theology and religion are to me oh so, that's great well yeah. I, that's that's perfect i've been to, to movies with like scientist friends and they're like oh that would never happen i'm like i'm in a movie right, right. anything can happen reality i do is we go to horrible horror movies together so She's 14, and we anytime a bad horror movie comes out, we're like, all right, we're going. And we do like the Mystery Science Theater 3000 oh. in the back of the theater, <laughs> and we talk the entire time to each other. We don't disturb other people. We just talk <laughs> to each other, and we make fun of the movie the entire time. Oh, that's fun. Oh, I, you know, it's as I'm, uh, we'll be down to one kid in the house. I just enjoying these last few months with my middle daughter, who's, you know, getting ready to go to college and just like, just cherishing those moments of that kind of stuff right these simple times that you know we'll look back on it's just that's just great all right well i appreciate you sharing a little bit of that i got five questions to end our time with you ready mm-hmm. all right sound or smell that reminds you of your childhood wow this is going to sound goofy chitlins do you know what chitlins are yeah yeah yep yeah yep. it reminds me right. of my mother my, my favorite person in the world great first concert you ever attended um, it was in the late, uh, early nineties. It was a hip hop concert at Mississippi nights in St. Louis. And it was De La Soul. De La Soul. Mm-hmm. And leaders uh, of the new school, I'm sorry. So new leaders it, of the new school were the opening act of De La Soul was after that. All right. Uh, your first or your worst job. Wow. My first job was as a laborer for my uncle's construction company. Okay. And if you're turning the channels, um, one movie that you will always stop and watch? Uh, Sicario. It was on yesterday. Oh. I watched it twice in a row. (laughs) Yeah, okay. And the last one, pay it forward. An organization or person that more people should know about? 
North Newstead Association. It's a, uh, the community development corporation that I used to be executive director of. Um, I've, in my life or my professional working career, I've been the executive director of two social service agencies in St. Louis. And uh, it's located in North St. Louis and it provides housing and manages community-based uh, programming for the city of St. Louis to try to help um, underserved populations, uh, urban poor. Great. Awesome. Thank you. All right, man. It's been good to chat with you. So that's it for today. Uh, thanks for tuning in to this episode of BRC and Friends. Thanks again to Terrell Carter for hanging out today. Thank you for being here. Uh, be sure to pick up his book, uh, Finding Strength in Our Diversity, Healing Racial Divides. BRC and Friends was produced, written, recorded, and edited by Bruce Reyes Chow with zero help from his dog Vespa. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to BRC and Friends wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please follow, like, tag, and share on all the platforms via B-R-C-A-N-D-F-R-I-E-N-D-S. Thanks for listening to BRC and Friends. All around the world, poverty is stealing choices from kids. It's time to give those choices back. Introducing Chosen, World Vision's new invitation to sponsorship. For the first time, kids have the power to choose their own sponsors. Now the choice is theirs. The choice to take hold of their future and even the choice to step into a life-changing relationship with you. Learn more at worldvision.org chosen. Are you still mixing station gas and oil for your string trimmer, leaf blower, or chainsaw? Eliminate the mess and the guesswork with True Fuel, the original pre-mixed two-cycle fuel. True Fuel is ethanol-free and precision-engineered for small engines, improving performance, and extending the life of your outdoor power equipment. And True Fuel is available for both two- and four-cycle engines. Empower your equipment with True Fuel. Available at your local home and garden center today.